This is Alex Goldberg, recording from our studio in San Francisco. This is Chemjobber, recording from our headquarters in Shell, Wyoming. Grab a plate full of stuffing or pass out on the couch with a food coma, because you're listening to the Thanksgiving episode of The Periodic Table. This week, we're talking with Sarah Cady of Iowa State University about her love of magnet, civic engagement, and cranberry sauce. Alex and I fixed some drinks, and we virtually crashed Sarah's Taco Monday tradition. Today, we're talking with Dr. Sarah Cady manager of the Chemical Instrumentation Facility at Iowa State University. Sarah is a veteran member of Chemistry Twitter, an engaged resident of Ames, Iowa, a proud alumna of both Iowa State University and South Dakota State University, and a bicycling enthusiast. Welcome, Sarah. (laughs) Oh, thank you for having me on the show, Alex and CJ. I'm super excited to be on one of the first few shows. We're, We're happy to have you. We're very happy to have you. Sarah, we're very serious here at the Periodic Bagel. So very serious. Very, we're very going serious. to start with a analytical science-oriented question, which is, <laughs> would you rather fight one 600 megahertz NMR-sized duck or 600 benchtop NMR-sized ducks? Oh, I guess it depends. Is it like a duck or is it a rubber duck? Like, can I puncture it? No, it's a or, you're actually fighting CJ. Oh. <laughs> 600 think, MR bench top size size CJs. No. I think I, my significant other has that VR game um, where you slice things. And so I think I would rather fight 600 bench top size ducks. So I'm very good at, good at the, the rhythmic virtual reality slicing. Nice. So it's very important. Yeah. Is so that a good size duck a sandwich? Yes, okay. obviously. Thank you. No. No. You know, so far I feel like our guests have been sandwich liberal-minded. Um, yeah, yeah. Sandwich progressives. <laughs> yeah, sandwich progressives. Yeah. Um, we'll find out at the Iowa primaries or the Iowa caucuses. Our caucuses. For the uninitiated, an NMR is like an MRI, a giant magnet, but it's used on small molecules instead, and it's a powerful analytical tool. For those of the listeners who don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I have uh, lived in Ames, Iowa for 15 years now. Um, I went to graduate school at Iowa State, and I stayed on for a a little over a year as a postdoc. And then um, my predecessor in the NMR facility retired, um, and I applied for that position. And I started in the facility in 2011. And uh, I've been there ever since and then just recently moved into the management role for the whole facility, um, but still keeping my NMR role as well. I started out doing NMR on membrane proteins. I worked on one protein for six and a half years, pretty much different chunks of it, uh, protein from the influenza virus. What were you trying to learn about that protein? Just everything about it. We did did a lot of structural investigations. Um, We did a lot of physical chemistry, like dynamics, 
um, rotational dynamics of the protein, which to me was the most interesting part as a P-chemist. I thought that was the best. (laughs) And I have a very mathematical paper that's my favorite paper that I I worked on that you know never gets cited because it's just math and then later on we worked on drug binding and understanding how the anti-influenza drugs interact with this specific protein just a lot of different structural investigations and just using NMR in a million different ways to look at one protein. CJ pointed out this great column that you wrote in Chemistry World, where uh, you, you talk about what's what's great about being an instrument manager at, at a university. And I didn't realize until I read this article that there were students who actually did drop samples down an NMR without a spinner. I thought that was like the ghost story that you tell on camping trips with other chemists. I didn't realize that people actually did that. Yeah. So. And the call to the instrument facility was coming from inside the house. (laughs) (laughs) The call that I talk about in the column was actually sitting on my couch, like texting with another chemistry friend. And it was like Saturday after the end of the semester is like Saturday before Christmas. And I got this email, just this panicked email from a first year student. And and so I went into the lab and fished out this tube with the duct tape on the stick. And, um, and so it, it, it doesn't happen. It was an unbroken. Uh, it was an unbroken. That one was unbroken. Tube, right? And then just last week. Wait, hold on, hold on. So this, yeah. this has happened more than once. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So just last well, yeah, it was about a about a month ago, we were having our majors organic chemistry lab use one of the the lesser used NMRs to to run their experiments. And I don't remember the exact sequence of events, but there was an empty spinner that went down the magnet, and then a tube without a spinner, and then and then that that did end up breaking a probe. So yeah. like the, the tube without the spinner didn't like land in the middle of the spinner and fix the problem on its own. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been amazing. So how often would you say this happens that someone puts a tube down without a spinner, like per year, say? Oh, I would say less than once. Year, you know, less than but, once. A year. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's now it's happened maybe two or three times in eight or nine years. I've had some auto sampler catastrophes. We had a auto sampler, a different kind of like, it was mounted on the top of the magnet and it inserted like multiple samples into the magnet bore. And that was exciting. All of these things, of course, all of these things happen when my other NMR colleague is out of town and then I'll be in the other building, you know, doing EPR or something like that. And so then just some hilarious catastrophe happens. And then I, you know, I can't, I'm always like, of course, my colleague left yesterday for, you know, an international trip for a month. So <laughs> um, I, I just like to add um, for the, the non-experts in our audience, which pretty much consists of my parents, my sister and my brother-in-law, um, an <laughs> NMR, <laughs> an NMR is a giant magnet that you use to figure out what's inside of a chemical mixture. Um, <laughs> so let's just, let's just slip it that in. It allows you to see the carbon atoms and the hydrogen atoms. And it's a very expensive in- instrument that undergraduate, chemists and sometimes graduates and postdocs will will break and sarah is the one 
who will have to yes. solve all these problems. So my most memorable, this was not my mishap. This was my lab mate's mishap with solid state NMR. And so probably most organic chemists don't really aren't familiar with a solid state NMR, but the, the sample holder for a solid state NMR is very different. It's small white zirconia tube and we typically use they're about four millimeters in diameter and maybe a centimeter long or so and so like I said before we were working on membrane proteins and these are like phospholipids and proteins and on water so probably about 50 percent water and the one thing especially on an older version of the NMR software the thing that you could do pretty easily that could really destroy things was you could push this button that seemed fairly innocuous but what it would do it would reset your window to be just the peak that you had zoomed in on and to you know you wouldn't really think about it but what happens when in NMR when you make this really small window is it you're gonna create a very long acquisition time for yourself. And that's fine in solution NMR because you're not doing what's called high-powered decoupling. And you're using very high-power radio frequency pulses to do this. And typically you only want to have them on for a few milliseconds or something like that. So you click this button and all of a sudden your acquisition time is set to be several seconds. And so what happens, you get radio frequency heating of your sample. Okay. <laughs> and what happens when you radio frequency heat your membrane protein, your phospholipid, is basically you just sort of vaporize it. And you and these samples, I always, um, so I tweeted tonight, like, spinny booger 2020 would be my <laughs> campaign. <laughs> but these, these, these samples are like tiny boogers and so you just eject this this gross gel from your sample holder and it just shoots the cap off and it goes all over the stator where the sample spins and it's just a massive pain and so my lab mate did that I don't think I ever did that I had the caps fall off a couple times I've crashed rotors in pretty spectacular fashion but it wasn't it was just kind of a random thing but you could always do that especially with the the samples that had a lot of water in them you said something about so, spinny booger 2020 is yeah. that uh, is that your platform for the next that election? Is. yeah so another twitter another chemistry twitter his <clears throat> ESG project was beetle farts and, go on <laughs> uh, Eric Arndt and so he was going to be my vice president so um because he wasn't he wasn't 35 yet so he was gonna you know so we're gonna be spinny boogers beetle farts 2020 so I want to hear more about beetle farts boy I would have to go back and find that thread but he was oh, talking so you've been about planning for your 2020 campaign for for quite yeah. some time just doing the the background research yeah on the the issues that people truly care about so spinny books and beetle farts, beetle farts. <laughs> you've got the scientific vote like locked in here yeah he but he did some really crazy i think he was at the synchrotron or whatever looking at um how these some sort of gland on these beetles it's the it, bombardier beetle isn't it yeah 
Yeah, and it would eject either. I don't know if it was. That's uh, the one that like makes the hot juice that spits out of its abdomen or something. Yeah, and and how fast the ejection was. Like you would study the the like the fluid dynamics of this. I think I'm gonna have to set this uh, this podcast episode to explicit content here. This is a uh... yeah. <laughs> I, I like I, I really want to think that like the Defense Department is like somewhere there's some military scientists that's like <laughs> taking Eric's data and like making like these like deadly beetles somewhere hidden in Vladimir Putin's office, just like <laughs> waiting for the right moment. Bang. And then they and then they fart and Sarah and Eric win the election. Beetle venom all over the place. Yeah, that's how we're going to solve election interference is with beetle farts. So (laughs) can we quote you on that? (laughs) Yeah, that's my platform. Nice. Uh, (laughs) Listeners, if you haven't figured it out, uh, all three, all three of us here have uh, consumed certain alkyl alcohols. It's a Monday night. (laughs) How many drinks would it take before you could not coherently explain EPR spectroscopy to organic chemists? I think I already know the answer to this, and I think it's zero, but like, yeah, and that's not (laughs) nothing to do with you. (laughs) Um. It really depends on the organic chemist, I think, because (laughs) if they have any like sort of free radical, you know, chemistry in their lab they're like oh yeah you know I, I get that because actually like a lot of the people that I work with um doing EPR spectroscopy are organic chemists or inorganic chemists and that has been a journey <laughs> for both me and the <laughs> organic chemists that I work with because EPR theory is just weird solid stand on a mar which is All saying right. something yeah. How many drinks would it take before you couldn't coherently e- explain EPR spectroscopy to my parents and my sister <laughs> and my brother-in-law? Like, listen, like I, any number of drinks you get into me and I will talk spectroscopy with um, Donald normal Trump. people. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's just. People are like, what do you do? And I, you know, I'm like, I work with giant magnets. And they're like, well, okay. So, I mean, I can launch into it pretty readily with zero drinks. And I don't, I don't know if it'll be coherent. I mean, that, that just depends how I could just, just because I I bounce around a lot in my discussion of things, you know, people, people who are non-chemists, like they, you know, they're familiar with MRI, they're familiar with free radicals. Like, I feel like we talk about free radicals a lot in the, you know, just in the discourse. People have some baseline understanding of of spins, whether they realize it or not. So uh, are are you all the way through the Negroni or part of the way through? I'm uh, I'm. I'm working on it. <laughs> so I'm I, I my my two fingers of whiskey are gone. So I'm going to try to explain NMR. Okay. Uh, which is uh, NMR is you you have the molecule and you put it into a magnetic field and all the protons, 
right? Because that's the only thing that we think about is protons. All the protons are aligned, and then you you pulse it with the radio frequency, and all the spinning protons that are aligned, they uh they 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 do that down thing and then they start spinning <laughs> back up. Sarah, Sarah, how uh, how often has anyone ever uh, drunkenly mansplained to you an <laughs> spectroscopy? <laughs> um, I mean, usually like at the spectroscopy conferences when we're drunkenly mansplaining spectroscopy to each other, it's I mean. <laughs> we all kind of know <laughs> the down thing. You know? <laughs> An interesting aspect of the whole work-life balance conversation that everybody on chemistry Twitter has is the fact that like you're uh, an analytical facility manager and the analytical facility, so far as I can tell, is basically running all the time. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, that's pretty much we're 24 seven. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's always something going on. And so, like, it's not uncommon for you and I to be uh, talking via Slack or whatever. And, like, you're like, hey, it's Sunday night and I'm in the lab, like, setting up this experiment or whatever. So um, but you you do actually have a pretty full life outside of the laboratory. One of the things that I'd like you to talk about a little bit is, like, how you've gotten involved with uh your community since you've been living in Ames for a little while yeah so I think what a lot of people have realized in the current political moment is that there has to be something that you know awakens something within you to get involved with politics because it's not easy um you know it's a lot of baloney um and So for me, it was a neighborhood development issue. And I think that happens a lot where there's a neighborhood issue that that brings people to the table and makes them want to um, be more involved. And that was what really got me started in city politics. Um, And that was probably about seven years ago. Started going to a lot of city council meetings, uh, working with um neighbors on variety of advocacy issues um but i think in looking back at that time um i think my opinions about development and um you know what my idea of a of a community is you know has evolved a lot um but i think there are aspects of that time that i really i'm really proud of um I remember when we first formed a neighborhood association, I realized I didn't want to just advocate for this, this one development issue. Um, and so I went around my neighborhood and, and I lived in a, a very near campus neighborhood. And so we had a lot of rentals and, um, and a lot of college students in our neighborhood. And and I loved that aspect of the neighborhood. But there were obvious negatives. There was a lot of trash and a lot of, um, you know, furniture on the lawns. And, um, and, you know, and things that I was just like, how can I work to change this? And, and, um, and so one spring I went and I handed out trash bags. And I put a little hanger on everybody's door. And I was like, 
here's what you can do with your furniture in the spring instead of putting it on the curb. And I specifically remember walking past this one house and one of the residents was outside and I was like, Hey, we're just doing a neighborhood cleanup. Um, here's a trash bag and here's some information on what you can do. And their yard was like littered with beer cans and like uh, they had like their beer pong tables set up in the yard (laughs) and, and, you know, and I was just being friendly and I, you know, and I, I think I must have walked by a day or two later with my dog and their yard was pristine. And it was like that tiny conversation, you know, just made this person aware that they live in a community and they're part of a neighborhood and that, and it made them just have a little bit of, you know, pride in their surroundings. And so another thing I was really I was really frustrated with the amount of furniture that people leave on their curb in the spring. And it was just felt really wasteful because a lot of it was really fine and, and reusable and, you know, and all the residents would go um, looking for curb <laughs> furniture in the spring. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the perks of living in a college town, but, you know, stuff would get rained on and stuff would get, um, you know, tip over and get broken. And, you know, a lot of stuff would end up in the trash or just end up like dissolving on the curb <laughs> over the course of several weeks because there was no plan. And, and the, the basically the residents would say, this isn't my problem. And the trash company would say, this isn't my problem because they didn't pay for the extra, you know, couch pickup. And so, you know, enough griping and agitating. Um, and in the last couple of years, the city has started doing, they do a pretty um, major rummage sale now at the end of the summer when all of the apartment turnover happens and a lot of the furniture gets recycled in the city. And it just, um, you know, it wasn't my idea necessarily. Um, Iowa City does a similar thing, but it was it was just me kind of griping and saying we can do better we can you know we can provide an avenue for people to recycle things and yeah and it it saved the city money they saved tons and tons of trash from going in the landfill I think it just makes the near campus neighborhoods a better place to live um, just because there's less trash around and so like like I said I've been involved with city politics for like seven years now these changes are slow like sometimes frustratingly slow um cj talked a little bit about my bicycling advocacy i mean there are are projects that when i started getting involved with the bicycling group probably five years ago they're like yeah this project's on the on the plan for next spring like it's still not done and now i'm on the parks commission and there are projects that were on our agenda three years ago when I started that are still not funded or we're still kind of waiting for things and things that didn't pass. And so, yes, just, just to be really clear, what is your official position? I am the chair of the parks commission now. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So you're, uh, you're Leslie Nope. She is Leslie Nope. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and I, I mostly love it. I love interacting with the citizens. Um, I will say for people who are interested in getting involved with local politics, it's much more satisfying at the local level because 
even though these changes are slow and incremental, like you can still see it changing. Like, and you can, you as a citizen can have an impact that is pretty immediate. Like a lot of our attention is focused on national politics. And yeah. I think like a lot of us feel paralyzed by like all these things are happening and what can we do as individuals to make an impact and improve our society. And uh, like, I think there's a lot of like feelings of helplessness that I know, like I, I sometimes feel and, and, you know, my, my wife, Caroline sometimes feels and, um, and yeah, you're really highlighting something important that, you know, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily a on you to make a national giant impact and, you know, show up to vote obviously. But, you know, I think there are very real things you can do as an individual in your local community to, to make an impact, whether it's like you say, you know, like you're doing, um, getting involved on your your parks and, and recreation committee or, you know, volunteering or, you know, doing doing the things at, at a local level that can really uh, make an impact. Because um, I think those are the things that affect people, you know, day to day. You know, it, yeah. you know what what some what the president tweets on Twitter, you know, it yeah might make you angry. But how much does that actually affect your day to day? Um, I mean, I think the the local stuff matters more, you know, the traffic that you sit in every day, the, the trash on a neighbor's lawn. Um, those are the things that that you you often deal with most, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's um, and it, it's just the you know the day to day decisions. I mean, your local government has a budget; they have an agenda, and whether or not you are able to have a voice and a say in that agenda. Um, it's a lot easier to make an impact at that level. And and it's difficult. You know, I didn't have time when I was a grad student. um, And I wouldn't say like, you know, everybody needs to get involved in local politics. But I think um, if there's something that you're passionate about, if you're saying, I don't, you know, I don't like where this bike lane is, or I wish there was a bike lane here, or I wish this was different, or I wish we had this, you know, event or festival. Um, There are so many groups that you can even get involved with a little bit and give your time to that group and make something happen. And, and it's so rewarding to be involved in the community at that level because you see those changes, I mean, they can happen in a matter of weeks or months. I'll, I'll say like, you know, one of the things that um, I struggled with a lot in grad school was like, you know, I, I really didn't have a lot of time for um, stuff outside of grad school. As an undergraduate, I was involved on campus and I've, I don't know, I've always been kind of interested in volunteering and, and this and that. And I really felt kind of that as a void during grad school. And then afterwards, you know, I, I really did decide to make a point of, of volunteering and, you know, using the fact that I wasn't working some pretty silly <laughs> hours to, uh, yeah, to, to volunteer and to, um, to get involved. And, and I guess the, the question that I have is like, what advice would you have for grad students who are really kind of focused on um, their research, but still want to make an impact um, on their community at a local or, or national level? You know, I, the grad students I see making, a big difference now. Um, I see that you probably have like a graduate and professional student Senate. Um, Those groups are going to be deciding budgets, maybe for student organizations or for, you know, they could be deciding 
something as important as a policy for maybe you don't have a policy for parental leave for graduate students at your university or discussing things like um, mental health care at your university. Um, I think those grad students on the graduate student, graduate professional student senate make a huge difference. Um, but they're also doing things that make a difference in everybody's life. They're, you know, they're deciding budgets for travel grants and maybe they're holding, I, I know we have a, a research conference every spring and there's a three minute thesis competition and then, you know, there's ways to sort of raise your profile at the university level. Um, I think there are a lot of really great groups for um, the different um, international groups and ethnic groups on campus. Um, I know I went and uh, to one of the SACNAS meetings, which is the Society. It's the Society for Advancement of Chicanos slash Hispanics and Native Americans in Science. Yes. And um, that group does a lot on campus. They've been very involved. Um, and I know we have several faculty members and they've really raised their profile um, in terms of like um, getting underrepresented groups to apply for fellowships and apply for um, summer research positions. Um, <clears throat> and so some of those groups are really, really important for graduate students to get involved with. And they recognize your time is precious and your time is limited and you may not have, you know, all the time in the world to devote to these. So those are some great ways for graduate students to get involved, um, you know, at their universities. So, Sarah, you have the honor of being uh, our inaugural Thanksgiving episode, and I think you're perfect for it. So <laughs> we're coming up on Thanksgiving. And so Alex and I thought that we would ask you some questions about your favorite Thanksgiving side dishes. So this is this or that Thanksgiving edition. Okay. So are you ready? Yep. Raw carrots or olives? Oh, uh, definitely carrots. Yeah. How come? Because I hate all olives. <laughs> all olives? All, all olives. of them. All olive oil is fine, but I don't like any olives. <laughs> Weird. Huh. Okay. That's great. Uh, so the next one is uh, canned cranberry sauce or olives? Canned cranberry <laughs> sauce. <laughs> Boiled vegetables or sweet potato casserole? It really depends on the vegetable. I actually don't love a sweet potato casserole. I like sweet potato in a lot of other applications, but I don't, I don't know. It's like too mushy and too sweet. I don't know. It depends on the vegetable. If it was like, it was like a lightly blanched green bean. <laughs> you know, butter. that's not one of the options, no, no, Sarah. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll pick sweet potatoes then. <laughs> sweet potato casseroles or creamed onions? Is that a thing? Oh. Or creamed Creamed onions are a thing. I, I was I, not aware of that until today. Oof, um, definitely sweet potatoes then. All right. Uh, ambrosia salad or uh, wet stuffing? Wet stuffing. Um, definitely ambrosia salad. <laughs> so green bean casserole or cream spinach? Green bean casserole. With or without crunchy uh, uh, oh, onion bits straight out of the definitely, can. Definitely, definitely crunchy onion bits straight out of the can. Yes. <laughs> ham or boiled Brussels sprouts? Probably ham, although I love a Brussels sprout, but roasted 
or yeah. in like like really chopped up fine with a like a vinaigrette and some yeah, cranberries. That's, that's <laughs> What kind of monster in 2019 still boils Brussels sprouts? Yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, Last one, EPR or NMR? Oh, NMR, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, all my EPR pals. Sorry, W. (laughs) (laughs) If you had had a couple drinks and you had to explain one of these things to my dad, then... (laughs) Definitely uh, NMR. Yeah, definitely NMR, eh? Yeah. We we really need to have that... uh, that whole like explain politics to your relatives uh, thing that happens every year about this time. It needs to be explain NMR to your relatives instead. See, yeah. I mean, I have explained NMR to my relatives and my and my my uncle. You know, I just specifically remember probably over Thanksgiving. At Thanksgiving, probably. I mean, I didn't Amazing. really see him that much. And he's like, so you you look at the molecule. And I'm like, no, well, that's like, you know, like SEM or TEM. Like, you can see the actual molecule. But we just look at the energy of the molecule. <laughs> but, and, did he, but did he try to explain it to you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. So, Sarah, without getting too mushy. Um, uh, or getting as mushy as you want. That's right. Oh, what are you thankful for this year? I am just just thankful for this spectacular community of friends, um, both locally and on the Internet, that has been uh, a wonderful support system through a lot of changes in the last couple of years, just from everything from, you know, helping me with my job search this year and discussing family issues and, you know, helping me with uh, mowing my lawn. Um, just, I have a really wonderful local group of friends and I have a really wonderful group of internet friends and I appreciate you all. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on our Thanksgiving episode of uh, the periodic bagel. Wish you and all of your loved ones, local and on the internet, a very happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for joining us. Yes, happy Thanksgiving to you, too. Thanks again to Sarah Katie for sharing her insights and evening with us. You can follow her on Twitter at Sarah D. Katie. Thanks again to Brendan Burkett for designing our logo. You can follow him at Chemscripts. And to Caroline Landau for coining our podcast title. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you choose. Don't forget to rate and review our podcast. And feel free to leave us your feedback on Twitter at Periodic Bagel. This episode was brought to you by the letter N and the area code 515. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll talk with you next time. I feel like Thanksgiving, for some reason, Thanksgiving seems like a Midwestern holiday, and I don't know why. No, I uh, mean, technically. I mean, I guess it's an American holiday, but like... Really really bluntly, it's like... Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. <laughs> okay, that's that's me being Canadian. But like, like Canada, we have Thanksgiving, and that didn't take place in Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. And it's not even on November twenty eighth. Yeah, we've got nothing to be thankful for come November. <laughs> that's what my dad says. I love cranberries in general. Like, I think they're great.